This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Friends. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting zennovascotia.com. Recently, the board came together and put together some bylaws uh, for our fledgling organization. And as part of that, we had to write a mission statement, a statement of purpose. And within that statement of purpose, we included a diversity statement, which we just lifted from another group in Cambridge because they said it very well. Why reinvent the wheel? And it reads like this. We welcome people of all races, cultures, ethnicities, sexual orientations, gender identities, classes, religions, abilities, and ages. We are committed to providing a safe place for all people to explore the Dharma and awaken to their true nature. As a community, we can say this, and I think we can say it very joyfully, that we aspire to this, we want this. And, and we can believe that we want that. But as a tradition, it's a little bit more complicated. And today I wanted to speak to that. Because we have to be honest about how we got here. When I speak of the tradition, I mean not just Zen, but Buddhism in general. It's hard to know where to start. There's, if you follow these things, there's been a, a bit of a, a debate online for more than a year now about a figure named Kodo Sawaki. He was a pivotal figure in Soto Zen in the last century. He really revitalized the tradition in Japan. Uh, by all accounts from people who met him, and I've known people who met him, very powerful, uncompromising teacher and a strict proponent of Zazen and where the tradition was starting to get kind of lax, he was able to step in and say, no, we need to hold to deeper principles than that. So he's, he's held in very high esteem in Japan. But he hasn't fared very well over here because it turns out that in addition to being this remarkable Zen teacher, he was also uh, a bit of a nationalist. And it would appear uh, went so far as to equate for soldiers realization with killing people who were not Japanese. So the arguments online have to do with translation. People are reading his writings and they're saying, well, when he said this, he really meant this. And other people are saying, no, no, no. When he said this, he meant it literally, which is usually the bad version. Right. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. 
And as someone who has done translation, sometimes I get, I get interested in this because I hear about this word or this word and I have my own idea. But mostly I, I think it's a strange conversation to be having. And the reason for that is because we should not be surprised that this man held narrow views. We should expect it. He was a man born in the late 1800s, brought into a tradition that was uh, very unlike the ordinary world, probably with very few uh, real encounters with women along the way. It's a small world. He was a man of his times. That's one example. We can go back to the Buddha. The Buddha, to his credit, was able somehow to see through caste, through the caste system in India. That was a radical way of seeing. People who were considered by most people to be non-human or garbage, the Buddha was able to see as human. And he invited them into the Sangha, people who otherwise were not invited to anything in the culture. That was not a blind spot for him. But women were. Women wanted to enter the Sangha. Women wanted to be ordained. And the story goes, even within the tradition, that the Buddha said no. And he came up with lots of reasons why that was, oh, it's not a good idea, guys. And Ananda, who was one of his most faithful students, He saw that it was okay. And he encouraged the Buddha to change his mind. And he succeeded. Now sometimes the way this story is told, in fact most of the time, we say, well, of course the Buddha wasn't sexist. That's a ridiculous idea. He was the Buddha. Right. He just didn't think that the culture around him would be ready for this. So he resisted. And Ananda said, hey, it's worth it. It's worth the risk. But I think what we really need to notice, and this is relevant to recent stories we've maybe read about in the news as well, that whether he genuinely changed his mind or not, the only person who was able to convince him was a man. He never listened to the women. In this particular school, we're lucky that Dogen had some fairly enlightened views on women, or at least he went out of his way to write about 
women and to, to point out that when we encounter a woman who is a true teacher, that we should treat her simply as a true teacher with no other filter. But even then, in all likelihood, just being practical, women were probably still objects. They were an abstraction. Did Dogen have peer relationships with women? In the 13th century in Japan, did he have relationships with women in which the women were his equals? Did he ever have a friendship with a woman? Ever? So even with the best of intentions, he probably saw women as something very distant, as a concept. And the concept was, even a woman, if she's realized, we should listen to that too. <laughs> right. Good for him. But the likelihood that any of these people were able to be inclusive in the way that this diversity statement I read at the beginning suggests is almost zero. Not because they were inherently bad, not simply because they were men, but because any other scenario is almost unthinkable given what we know about history. And sometimes going down this path can lead to a bit of despair. We start to notice that there is enlightenment as we might talk about it in this room. And then there's something that we might call enlightened thinking, which speaks more to the highest ideals of this time and this culture, what we expect an aware person to know and to see. And so there, though there may have been, and there have been, some extraordinary people along the way in this 2,500 years, we should also accept up front that very few of them would have seemed enlightened in the face of modern views of inclusivity and equality. Those ideas just simply didn't exist. They're very new we've been handed something very new. We don't have to celebrate these things in the tradition's past. And we, in fact, we shouldn't try to gloss over them. We shouldn't ever try to suggest, well, it was another time, therefore, there's no weight to that. There's still weight. It's still a failure. As I was driving here, I was thinking of, of an extreme example, which is Columbus, Christopher Columbus. Right. Recent scholarship 
points out not only that he had no idea where he was going in the first place, but that he inflicted horrible cruelty on the native populations in the Western Hemisphere. He fed Native Americans to his dogs. I used to sing songs about him in elementary school. This man, who is presented as being so brave and so forward-thinking, this man who is a human being in every way that we are, was able to look at another human being who is exactly as human as we are and not see a human being. But literally, he saw dog food. And what's interesting about this is that we can piece together the cultural reasons why he would have thought that way. And we can demonstrate over and over that he was not, by that time's measure, a psychopath. No one would have thought him crazy. We can track all of it. But that knowledge doesn't change what he did at all. So I don't mean in this conversation for us to suggest that that everybody just did their best and that's enough. Because we can look at our own lives and see that our own best is often not enough. But we can be grateful for these stories, as sad as they are and as disappointing as they may be, because they point out something that's very hard for us to come to terms with, which is that enlightenment is not what we usually imagine it to be. And it's not necessarily what we usually want it to be. That is to say, it's not omniscience. And it is not some sort of objective, perfect moral clarity. It's something else. We also need to recognize that the definition of enlightened thinking is always moving. It's constantly changing. And what we consider to be enlightened thinking today is different from what it was 15 years ago. We're seeing huge cultural change right now. Things are happening really quickly, right? In a way that is not easy for some people in my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation. Everyone in the room is talking about something that they see that people in my grandparents' generation can't see. <laughs> it's very frustrating for them, right? People are speaking as if it's obvious that gay people should get married. Right? But it's as if we're talking about this green light in the middle of the room, and we can see it, and no one else can. Our blind spots are not just <laughs> peripheral.
This is always in flux. The good news is that Buddhism is very good where the ground is not solid. Buddhism is really big on change. So there's nothing scary about this. And what we can understand is that 20 years from now, or 100 years from now, or 500 years from now, there will be more included that we right now can't see. There will be things that are obvious to my grandchildren's grandchildren that to me are inconceivable. We haven't arrived. (laughs) That wouldn't make any sense. It, It would just be too clean if right now in 2014 we figured it out. But if we haven't figured it out, despite all of our best intentions, it means that there are things that are invisible to us right now. I smiled when we were reading the Metta Sutta just now because it says, may all beings be happy, visible or invisible. Nothing is inherently invisible. Invisible means I can't see it. And so I'm putting out this intention toward the things that I recognize are in my blind spots. It's an incredibly difficult problem to have to go to this idea that there is something in front of me that I cannot see when I don't know what that is. And therefore, I have no idea how to see it. I heard a teacher once, uh, his name is Isho Fujita. He was talking about one of the problems of Zazen, and he described it as the, the magic picture problem. Maybe I've mentioned this before. When I was young, there was this, all these posters everywhere, the magic pictures, that just look like nothing. They look like, like a jumble of, of white and black or white and green or something like that. But you knew that if you stared at them long enough and went a little bit cross-eyed, that suddenly a three-dimensional dolphin would jump out or whatever it was, or text. You know, There was something hidden. And if you just stared at it long enough and hard enough and in just the right way, it would reveal itself. What Isho Fujita was saying is that that's a mistake. We come to this practice, we come to Buddhism and we come to Zazen imagining that that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to just tweak our focus just right so that this thing will pop out. And that's the danger in what I'm talking about here as well. I don't mean to suggest that if the lighting is just right or if you put on these glasses that you'll suddenly see it all. It's instead the knowledge that if you really, really, really earnestly look hard for your entire life, you'll see a little more. In the same way that the other day I was driving down the street with my wife and I looked at a house. It was on uh, Connaught. It's this weird little house with octagonal windows. I'd never seen it before, but I've driven past it hundreds and hundreds of times. And the stupid question I asked, and not the first time I've asked this question was, has that house always been there? Well, I've lived here a year. So the answer is, 
Yes. As far as my world goes, it's always been there. And I never saw it once until yesterday. And then it was just clear as day. And if you're lucky, your life is full of those moments. Something comes into focus and you realize, not that you understand something you didn't understand, but that you're finally seeing something that has, has always been there. So we can understand that we are moving in a kind of ignorance. And we can also understand that because we have blind spots, that we're making mistakes. And because we don't know what our blind spots are, we don't know what our mistakes are. I have this image sometimes that realization, or, or even just truth, if we want to say that, is like a radio frequency. It's there. Right? This room is filled with them. Radio waves are just shooting through us and past us all the time. And through some sort of, of intentional awareness, sometimes we turn on our receivers. which still is not such a big deal. The, what's important is that we have speakers. Right? And so we become a vehicle for expressing that thing that's already there. But the reality is that some speakers are clearer than others. The frequency never changes. That transmission never changes. There is never anything wrong with what's coming in with what is present. But our limitations are revealed in how clearly we can express what we're encountering. I was trying and trying and trying with my wife today to see if there's a better word than this, but, but there isn't. It's the, the word that comes to mind is constipation. <laughs> we're constipated. right? In the sense that there's something there that needs to be expressed. <laughs> and as long as we have these blind spots, it means that it's not fully happening. We don't have to, from our lofty perch of the future, look back at Kodo Sawaki or Dogen or the Buddha or anyone else and try to evaluate their realization. It's a conversation that people get into all the time, and it's very strange. How enlightened was he? Was he 80% enlightened? <laughs> right? Was he enlightened only sometimes? I don't know what any of that means, but what we can understand is that to the degree to which they had blind spots, that realization was not fully conveyed through them not fully through their speech, not fully through their actions, because it's impossible. The teachings of this tradition would say that we cannot hide from the truth. 
but we can miss it. In this community, we commit ourselves to trying to understand what we don't see and why it is that we don't see it. That's what that diversity statement is about. But whatever that is, it's right here in front of us, and it's always been right here in front of us. And that's good news. That's where I'll stop. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.